Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Jingyi Li. She is an associate professor at UCLA working on statistical and computational methods in biology, biostatistics, bioinformatics, that cluster of topics, um, obviously near and dear to my heart as well. And the particular reason that I wanted her on today was because she published a paper last year, this one right here. And that paper, what it does is it compares and contrasts the topics of uh, statistical hypothesis testing versus binary classification, particularly for machine learning and data science methods. And I always think this is interesting um, because it's always helpful to always review and understand the connections between uh, various topics. And in particular, why I find it interesting is because, um, well, Jingyi's uh, intuition differs a little bit from mine. So she is comparing hypothesis testing to binary classification, which I think is very interesting and important. Whereas my intuition is usually uh, comparing hypothesis testing to something more like um, one class classification or anomaly detection. So um, it's always great to have um, to have my horizons widened. And I wanted to bring you guys along on that journey a little bit. So Jingyi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. And uh, where would you like to begin? Because um, I do I do really appreciate these types of publications, um, especially for people trying to learn when, uh, when we have young data scientists, young statisticians, and they are essentially given a massive technical landscape that they have to grasp, come to terms with. And then on top of that, you have to say, you know, well, you have to start picking up these applied areas and you need to learn that content as well. And so I think that publications like this are very helpful to our field um, because it helps people start sorting and making more sense of these things. Um, Especially when it, I think it also helps when you're longer having to be tested on these things and you're still trying to sort through them. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe you could uh, give us an example of, um, where students are sort of, or, you know, practitioners. Cause I think part of this is it's in practice where these two, um, different techniques sort of come into, I wouldn't call it conflict, but people are trying to decide which one they want to use. So what is sort of like the motivating case mm. for this paper? Yeah, the motivating case was a cell paper, which is about the problem of cancer driver gene detection or prediction. So what it tries to do is to leverage some knowledge of known cancer driver genes to predict the majority of genes we don't know well and to see which genes are likely cancer drivers, which are not. So that's the basic scientific setting of this paper, the cell paper. And I read that paper because of a collaborator who wanted to develop a new method for better prediction. And what surprised me was that the cell paper tackled this problem using the statistical hypothesis testing approach, which I think was problematic. So that was the first motivation for this paper. And the reason why I thought it was problematic was actually summarized in the last section of my paper. So there are four issues. The first one is that in that setting, each hypothesis testing was only using one gene at a time. So in other words, it is a sample size equal to one problem in our statistical language. So to me, that's very unusual because if we read the textbook examples, we know that we often have n data points or sample size equal to n to tackle a hypothesis testing problem. But that's not the case in this cell paper. We only have n equals one. 
And secondly, they don't actually have a null distribution at hand to actually compute a p-value based on the test statistic value we observe. So in that case, they have only one observation and they use that observation directly as the test statistic. And the null distribution was actually obtained from the known cancer driver genes and, or I would say the known non-cancer driver genes. They use that as the null distribution and to plug in that observed value for a new gene and to convert that observed value using the null, the empirical null as a tail probability greater than that value. And they call that probability as the p-value. However, they uh, basically assume the direction implicitly. That is the right tail is considered more significant. However, I feel like this assumption is not well justified. And furthermore, after they obtain one p-value for each unknown gene, and that what they did is that they apply basically a features a approach. They use the features approach to combine the multiple p-values of one gene. So to be to be more exact, what they did is that for each gene, it has multiple features, say P features, and they use the approach I described to convert each feature value into one P value so that the gene will have P P values in total. And to combine the P P values, they used Fisher's method. But we know that Fisher's method has the independence assumption for the PP values, and that's also not really verified, or there's no way to verify it. And we know that it's unreasonable to assume the, peach, the features to be independent in this biological setting. So overall, I feel like those issues are troublesome, and I want to think whether we have a more, uh, I would say, succinct or clearer way to approach of the problem. And to me, since they have known cancer driver genes and known non-cancer driver genes, I think this serves as a good training data to build a classifier so we can predict a new gene as cancer driver or not. So that's why I think the binary classification formulation is more reasonable. And that's why that was that's my motivation for writing this article. Cool. So uh it seems like your motivation was probably it was several fold there uh just yeah. to go go uh back to the beginning so obviously first bit was that um holistically um you you looked at this problem and were surprised that they were using hypothesis testing uh for this problem when it yeah. seemed like a bit more of a binary classification problem um right exactly yeah and there's uh, then of course there's the other issue that they use an in of one study um or i guess an in of one type of calculation for that yeah. Um, tied to the N of one issue was that um, um, that the null hypothesis from which they conducted their hypothesis test was, I guess, derived from was derived empirically from, I guess, previous studies or something like that. From that data, the, yeah, from the genes they know that are not cancer drivers. Okay, and so were those yeah. genes that they knew were those no were those from a from publications or were they right. from another data set that they had sort of on hand? From uh, from another data set where based on pr prior studies where people say, okay, we, we believe that these genes are unlikely to be cancer drivers. Mm -hmm. cool. yeah. Actually, that's just sound a little bit more like uh, the, my uh, typical approach to an anomaly detection problem. But um, mm -hmm. 
But anyway, maybe I'm not going to those weeds. So, I mean, obviously the author of the uh, paper is not here um, to discuss mm-hmm. that work, but we'll, we'll just uh, we'll take these things as um, mm-hmm. a, a, at face value. Um, so um, just to reiterate, there was the N of one issue. And there one was, issue. yep, there was the um, null hypothesis derived from um, a separate data set. So essentially it wasn't a statistically described, I guess, null hypothesis, or at least it wasn't, um, it wasn't a null hypothesis that was defined in terms of, for example, like how a test statistic would vary under exactly. a null, null hypothesis. And, uh, yeah. And I want to add another point is that they didn't use the known cancer driver genes to decide the direction of the test. Like I ah. said, that yes, they just assumed that, okay, that's the, the, te- the, the, the direction is one directional greater than, but they didn't consider that it's it's possible to bi-directional, two-sided. Okay, yeah. so basically your domain knowledge um, of this would be a bit, so they, they selected a one-sided hypothesis test for this. Exactly. Um, however, your uh, one's domain knowledge would suggest that you can't be sure that it's actually a one-sided test, um, that there wouldn't be a two-sided. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Oh, go on. Yep. Yeah. So I think the fundamental reason why they chose this approach was because p-values are so popular in biomedical sciences. And also people are very keen to use the false discovery rate as a way to set a threshold on p-values. So that's why they wanted to use P-value to obtain p-values one per gene, and then use the Benjamin Hochberg approach to set a false discovery rate control for on the p-values, so that they can control the false discovery rate. That's their ultimate goal. But what I wanted to point out is that all this false discovery control idea requires valid p-values, which means that the p-values if the null hypothesis are true, must follow uniformly in the zero to one interval, right? That's the assumption we must have. However, we didn't actually know whether this is true or not, given the complicated procedures they use to calculate the p-values. And also, I really doubt the the validity of the Fisher's method for combining multiple p-values for each gene. So altogether, yeah, I was, I think this procedure is doubtful and unnecessarily complicated. All right. Um, So just to, um, I guess to recap, because obviously I missed, uh, I missed that other point when you originally said it, Um, there is the multiple comparisons issue where effectively they assumed independence of the various um, comparisons that they're making, which would then mean that, um, well, obviously that would have um, a, I guess you'd call it a deflationary effect on what the actual um your air rates would be um it would deflate your air rates um when they should in fact be inflated or at least you should be justifying um right given that the p-values comp- are, are likely problematic as you said it could actually inflate the actual false discovery rate or deflate it either mm-hmm. way is possible right and i yeah. guess just to uh just to resummarize for people who um haven't thought about hypothesis testing for a while which might be upwards of 50% of our data science audience. Um, yeah. The um, uh, the other issue is that effectively um, p-values under the null hypothesis um, are uniformly distributed between zero and one. Um, so the idea is that if the null hypothesis were to be true, your p-values um, will essentially be randomly varying in this uh, uniform distribution. 
um, you'll essentially have a random chance of rejecting the null hypothesis given the very nature of the null hypothesis in your hypothesis test. Um, and so obviously, um, and then if you have a multi, if you have many of these hypothesis tests, um, all of them are going to be varying in that, um, in that range. Um, and that, that immediately made me start thinking about um, a little bit of the copula work because I, I saw that you had that you've done some copula work recently, mm -hmm. but maybe we won't, uh, don't don't discuss that right now. But yeah, so um, where so what do you think is um, we we sort of laid out this set of problems, mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's very understandable when researchers um, want to mimic what they see in. Um, in the publications, because obviously yeah. no one wants to spend all their time and not get published for something that's effectively as scientifically good as anything else, um, right. whatever scientific goodness means. Um, but um, you can see them trying to essentially emulate other methods that they've seen in other publications, right. but it just doesn't work for essentially what they are saying. So what would you say is for, for a student who doesn't want to uh, come into your crosshair, so to say, um, or mine, for that matter. Um, what what would you say is like a good place to first start making a distinction between when to use statistical hypothesis testing versus when to use a binary classification? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good question, and I think the shortest answer would be to decide whether your scientific question or your data analysis question is concerning features or instances. So by instances, it's a way, it's another way of saying data points or observations, right? Or some people say the points in your sample. So I think that's the key. So like I summarized in the in the guidelines I outlined in my paper, I listed five guidelines. And the first guideline for data analysis is to decide which dimension do you consider, like if you have a matrix, which dimension would you consider as your instances and which dimension would you consider as your features? So ultimately, this is crucial before you formulate your problem as a machine learning or data science problem or statistical problem. The reason is that for feature concerning questions, we are actually concerning about what the feature would behave in our population. So we're basically using our sample as a way to infer about the population. So that is what we call a statistical inference problem. And that is more, I would say, my guess is that you would think, okay, this may be a hypothesis testing problem. It's like that nature. Well, if you want to make a decision for each instance, and that's more like a prediction problem. So then you're more likely to have this problem as a classification problem. So I would say that's the quickest way to first decide which one may be a more appropriate framework. Yeah, I, I yeah. did like that. It was um yeah. it took me a second read on that uh when I yeah. when I first saw it um to grasp it. It's like, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think you're correct on that one. Um that is helpful, but it's a little bit counterintuitive, especially for example, for people in the machine learning um arena where generally when we're talking features, we're talking prediction and classification problems. So mm -hmm. the idea that you're saying, oh, well, it's uh, if you're concerned about the features, we're actually dealing right. with the inference problem and right. that this is actually a, a hypothesis testing problem uh, might be a little bit, it might ca catch some people off guard, at least because they're less accustomed to seeing these words lumped together as opposed to another set of words lumped together. So maybe just to... Um, for uh, people like me who need a second read, maybe we should just go over that one more time. So okay. um, we have the um, we have hypothesis testing, mm -hmm. which is an inference problem. 
right. uh, we're trying to perform inference on um, unknown, like we, we don't actually know the answer, for example. Right. And in contrast with uh, binary classification, we do have data for which we do know answers. Um, right. we, we don't need to um, perform a hypothesis test on data for which we know the answers because they're labeled as such. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so maybe yeah. um, just uh, w w with that in mind, maybe just one more time for the audience, if you could reiterate that, because I know that I definitely needed a second read when I yeah. first saw that. Yeah. So if you have a set of features already, you know the features are well defined, but and each feature has a set of instances as its observations. If you are concerning about what the feature would behave in the population, like if the drug would be effective in the population, then it's a hypothesis testing problem because you're going to use your data as a sample to infer about the feature's nature in the population. On the other hand, if you have a set of instances that's already labeled as positive and negative or zero and one, then you can use these instances to infer the, to, to, to actually predict the labels of other new instances for which you don't have labels, then that's a classification problem. So in other words, the first set of problem, the first problem is concerning features. That's what I mean. And the second problem is concerning instances. Cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and um, did you want to go into an example that you had to begin with? Would you like to, mm -hmm. uh, what, what you're calling this? Should we go by example or should we go through each of your uh, your mm -hmm. rules first or your uh, suggested rules yeah. first? Maybe we can go to the example and use it as a way to describe the guidelines. Cool. Yeah. So what's mm -hmm. your, yeah. So if you could yeah. just describe the example. Yeah. So in my paper, there's a figure, the only figure that shows an example. Do Oh, yeah, just, you know, um, I'll, I'll pop it up on the screen. Okay, great. So this is an example where the features and instances are not so obvious. So I'm showing a data matrix where we have rows as patients and columns as genes. So this is what we call a gene expression matrix. So what we did is that for every patient, we measure multiple or hundreds or thousands of genes expression levels in that patient sample. So in this case, the columns as genes are in the same unit. So in this case, it's not so obvious that we can call the genes as features because we don't, we cannot use the units to decide, okay, these features are having different units. So we know they are different features. So for example, if we have people's sex, height, age, then it's obvious that they are features. But in this example, we have the rows in the same unit, same unit, and also the columns in the same unit. So we cannot use the unit as a clear criteria to tell which, which are features. However, what I mean is that using this matrix, depending on the questions you want to ask, then the instance and feature distinction could be different. So I'm here using one example to, to motivate us to think when genes can be considered as features. So if you're interested in whether gene A is a good biomarker for some disease diagnosis, right? So that means for people having the disease and for people not having the disease, this gene has very distinct levels, expression levels. So if that's the case, we may use gene A as a biomarker and use it for a diagnosis. So to answer the question whether gene A is a biomarker is actually a hypothesis testing question. The reason is that this gene A is fixed, right? It's a, it's a gene that has its reality. And also this gene, the question we're asking is about the genes 
nature in our population, whether it can really distinguish people having the disease from those not having the disease. And to answer this question, what we have is only the set of patients for which we measured this gene. So the patients are our sample. So in this setting, we are clear, okay, patients should be treated as instances, and this gene A should be considered as a feature. And we are talking about hypothesis testing problem. Okay, that's one side. On the other side, if we are interested in using the genes, okay, to predict whether a new patient with the disease or not. So it's a prediction problem or it's a diagnosis problem. So in this case, what we have are patients with labels, labeled as with the disease or without the disease. And we're going to predict a new patient and mark it as patient number one for its label. So this is a binary classification problem because what we are concerning is this new patient one. And what we have are existing patients with labels. So that this falls into a instance concerning question and we should tackle it with a binary classification. So that's what I have for this example. And you can also see that the sample size rule actually applies because when we are talking about the hypothesis testing problem for gene A, we have many patients as our sample. And so this is the sample size is clearly greater than one. But when we are talking about the diagnosis problem, we make prediction for each new patient. And in that case, the prediction is only done on one data point, that new patient, one instance. Yeah, actually, I'm, I couldn't recall. Have we actually discussed your mm -hmm. uh, sample size? Um, yeah, we, we, I mentioned this for that motivating example. I said okay. that, we, yeah, it was. All right. Oh yeah, and so yeah, you mentioned yeah. for the motivating example, but maybe you should yeah. just describe that again where the number of instances yeah. to make a decision. Yeah, definitely. So we can see that for the hypothesis testing problem about whether gene A is a biomarker, we are using multiple instances of as patients, the patients with the disease and the patients without the disease together to make that decision. Can we call this gene a biomarker or not? Right, so the n is not equal to one, but much greater than one. On the other hand, for that diagnosis problem, although our training data has sample size greater than one, but the training data is not our prediction target or it's not our problem. It is used to train a classifier. So basically the training data and the classification algorithm, let's say support vector machine, they jointly give us a classifier. And when I apply the classifier to do prediction, I only use n equals one, right? I'm doing the prediction for each new patient. Yeah, actually, um, I wish that I had looked into this um, a little bit before because I just I just realized that there's um, part mm -hmm. part of this question is I guess for a biomarker is yeah. is a biomarker um, must a biomarker be necessary for the condition or is it simply sufficient for the condition um, for which condition oh so so for example for mm -hmm. the um, for example a biomarker for disease does mm -hmm. a biomarker need to be necessary. Mm -hmm. um, for the disease, so essentially does it need to cause it, or is it simply, uh -huh. does it, is it just having a high enough uh -huh. need to be sufficient, or does it need to be both necessary and sufficient? Uh -huh. um, I see. So for your question, I think that's actually about how people define this term biomarker. Yes, but based yes, on my understanding, it's just a way for you to, it's just a feature so that you can do good diagnosis. It doesn't have to be the cause. 
Okay, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah I appreciate that. And I, I know that you had uh, previously uh, made an example of where um, you don't always need. Um, you can certainly have features that are useful for prediction that don't cause things. And you give the example of uh, fall leaves where obviously you can use uh, leaves turning uh, brown or falling off the trees as um, as your predictor for whether or not autumn mm -hmm. is imminent. Um, although obviously that does not cause autumn to occur. Um, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Cool. Sweet. So, um, so should we move on to the, uh, the second? Um, sure. Yep. Cool. So for the second guidelines, I suggest that after people have decided which where the rows are instances or rows are features, and the second guideline is to list the binary decisions to be made, the questions you want to ask, and then you can see whether each question is a feature concerning question or an instance concerning question. So that's the second guideline. It can also help you decide whether hypothesis testing or binary classification may be more appropriate. And the third guideline is to decide whether you do have available answers to your binary questions, the ones you listed in guideline two. So that's a way for us to decide whether binary classification is possible because we know that classification requires training data and the training data need to have labels, binary labels. So in that case, if these labels are available and if they actually serve as answers to your some of your questions, then yeah, it's an obviously binary classification problem. On the other hand, if you don't have the answers at all, like you don't know whether the genes are biomarkers or not, otherwise you wouldn't do the study, then it's more obviously, and a, a hypothesis testing problem. So I think that's another way for people to decide which one is more appropriate. And then guideline four just is to, about, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe just to reiterate that um, and give mm -hmm. people a little bit, uh, a minute or two to digest. Um, sure. So the availability of known binary answers in the data. Right. Um, when the answers are available, um, mm -hmm. obviously, we now uh, frequently like a supervised uh, learning problem. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, this is obviously available for um, uh, binary classification. So to whatever extent we say that um, if we want to do binary classification, it must be a supervised problem. Yeah. Um, then, um, yeah, sorry, I was, I was double checking. I, I want to go in again yeah. into anomaly detection mode and say one class classification. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so for, um, for these um, uh, annotated or labeled data points, we essentially mm -hmm. do have a supervised learning problem that's right. available to us and we could provide... Um, and uh, then we can uh, do binary classification. Could you then reiterate again the issue where if we have a hypothesis test, it means that right. essentially the hypothesis is being done on unknown quantities. Exactly. Um, so having it labeled though, do, why, why does having it, if it's, I guess why, um, if it's having it labeled, how does that remove the possibility of a hypothesis mm -hmm. test? Right. So if you have labeled, like if you do have an answer to a question already, for example, if somebody tells you that oh, gene A is indeed a biomarker, then you don't need to investigate this problem again, right? You have mm -hmm. the answer. And so it's no longer a hypothesis testing problem. The reason it's called hypothesis testing is that we don't know the answer. So we call the now and alternative as hypothesis. And we just want to use our data to make a decision. Should we reject the now or shouldn't? And so for that case, 
We don't have a label, and hypothesis testing is not a supervised problem by nature. Instead, if you if we imagine the most famous t-test, you can think that when we construct the t-statistic, the formula, and we say, okay, this t-statistic under our null hypothesis should follow a t-distribution, there's no data involved. We are just doing that conceptual thought experiment to come up with this procedure. And data only gets involved when we want to compute the statistic, t-statistics value, and then its p-value, right? So the value depends on our data, and the knowledge distribution doesn't depend on data. It's theoretical. And when we plug that observed value into the knowledge distribution, we obtain the p-value. So you see, only the test statistic value and the p-value, those two things depend on our data. So in other words, the decision depends on our data with usually more than one instances. However, the procedure, like the t-test and the null distribution, those two do not require data at all. And if you imagine, think about the same question for the binary classification, then it's different. For binary classification, when we call it supervised, we mean that the, the decision rule, the classifier, needs to be built to be trained on our label data, super, that's what we call supervision, right? And once we obtain the rule, we need a new instance to apply the rule to make a binary decision. So in other words, the rules construction involves data already, training data already, and its application is to an n equals one new instance. So that's very different from hypothesis testing. So in hypothesis testing, when we construct the rules of t-test, we don't need data. We only need n greater than one data to make a decision. I'm not saying that n equals one cannot be used, but we know that in hypothesis testing, the power, which, is, which means that what if the alternative hypothesis is true and the null should be rejected, what's the probability we can effectively reject the null? That power increases as n increases. So when our n is equal to one, we can imagine that the power wouldn't be very good. Yeah, I like that a lot, especially on my, I need, I want to, I'll try to use that again sometime, the idea of uh, hypothesis testing as it is a mental exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it is not um, the actual distribution under that assumption is not drawn from data. It is drawn from our mental exercise of this. Yeah. This issue. Excellent. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and uh, always a, a second coating of paint is always appreciated. Um, but yeah, so um, all right. Guideline number four. What's guideline number okay. four? Number four, we already mentioned that it's about the sample size, right? Mm -hmm. So you can think about the number of instances given your decision rule at hand, a test or a classifier. When you want to make a decision using the rule, how many instances would you have for making each decision? And for hypothesis testing, as I said, it's usually n greater than one. And for binary classification, it must be equal to one. You need to make one decision for each new instance then, yeah, I think that's a yeah. pretty clear distinction. Yeah, so essentially here the idea is that mm -hmm. um, for the actual act of classifying, mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to deal with the binary classification example here, right. for the actual act of classifying, we're essentially we're handing up this one data point to the um, <laughs> to the uh, classifying gods, if you will, and, <laughs> um, you know, it's like, it, but you are handing them one at a time. Exactly, um, yeah. And so in contrast, um in contrast for the hypothesis testing of course you're not handing it one at one. a time you're taking it as you're taking 
to whatever extent the data is coming in and being used in this uh, hypothesis, mm -hmm. the data is being, all data points are being included exactly. on the whole. Exactly. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Guideline, oh, was there anything more? Should we do guideline number five? Uh, actually, yeah, For maybe I can talk about this together with guideline five. I realized Great. I forgot to mention one thing about the distinction between instances and features that's in my guideline one. So mm -hmm. I would say to really conceptually be clear about what should be called instances, I think the, the, the ultimate solution is to think about what is the population. So I think in some examples, the population is very obvious, like our human population, right? If that's the population you are really interested in, then each data point you draw from that population is an instance, like each individual is an instance. And so we can think about instances as the quantities whose number may vary. And that's what we call the sample size. But for features, we actually think about those as fixed quantities, not from a population. So we don't talk about a feature population. For example, we just say, okay, we have age, we have gender, we have we have education level, we have salary. So these features do not actually belong to one population or do not belong to an obvious population. So I think that's another way for us to think about population, uh, using population to think about what may be called instances, what should be called features. Yeah. And yeah. I guess part of this, um, mm. this discussion, I think it does, it helps to reiterate that effectively, um, mm. you know, th this paper is in um, cell and yeah. um, it's in, I guess, also in response to a paper in cell, yeah. um, which is uh, for those who are not familiar with the bioinformatics based cells, a respected uh, journal in this field. And that a lot of this data is like the one that you showed us, for example, one where essentially we have um, this response data. Yeah. Um, this um, is essentially like a matrix of, um, I guess, responses or intensities. Um, yeah. The exact term gene is... Gene expressions. Gene expressions, yes, sorry. Um, and so for those, there definitely is sometimes um, a... I'm not... Um, there's a motivation or sort of a... There, there's an attraction to the idea about essentially, are we... can what, Which way do we actually want this matrix to go? Um, yeah. Especially in the case where... Um, we might have, um, I mean, if you have a study with 100 patients in it, um, one, like that's pretty good if you're getting gene expression data from them. But the second yeah. bit there is that you're getting probably thousands upon thousands of features from um, uh, from the data set. So each, um, there's an, uh, a small in large mm, P, as in so small number of observations, large right. number of features there. Right. And so there's pro that's part of the reason why I think um, in the field there might be some draw to say, well, if we can turn the features into the observations, then essentially we're ramping up our data set a whole bunch. Um, we can yeah. go for, to, from having a hundred observations to thousands, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that part of this is the reason I like your work is because there is a practical element to this. We are saying mm -hmm. in practice, here are some of these sort of like draws or little devils mm -hmm. whispering in our ear um, yeah. about saying like, let's, um, yeah. How can we make the most of these things? Um, yeah. And I guess that, that also, I, I wouldn't entirely reject the idea that there could be instances where the gene expression could be a given observation, but it might be something yeah. more along the lines of, 
Yeah. But it would need to be formulated as such. And exactly. So, like the motivating example I mentioned, mm -hmm. in my proposed solution to use binary classification to address the problem, here the genes are actually considered as instances. We are basically trying to predict whether a new gene, an unknown gene, is a cancer driver or not. So genes are treated as instances. And in that problem, the features are some biochemical properties like or sequencing, sequence properties of each gene, like whether the gene carries a mutation, etc. Yeah, so in that case, genes are instances. So like I said, whether a gene should be called a feature or an instance is actually context-specific. Yeah, I do. I do like that a lot. All right. Uh, should we do guideline number five now? Five. Yeah. Yep. Guideline number five is actually was actually recommended by a reviewer of our paper. So I feel like the reason I didn't include it in the first version is because I feel like it's a little a little more philosophical. However, the reviewer thought we should make this clear. So basically, it's about the nature of binary questions. So whether the nature is concerning uh, an un unseen population, so the population is in our mind, but we couldn't measure it, or it's actually about our observed instances. So the reviewer said that ultimately, if you are clear about this, then you should know, okay, if the question is about population, then it's a statistical inference problem. Then hypothesis testing is a framework for inference. If you're concerning whether about instances for, for which you already observe their features, but just not their label, you want to predict the label, then it's a supervised learning prediction problem and it should be formulated as a binary classification. So that's what the reviewer suggests us to add about the nature of each binary question. Yeah, I do like these types of things. Um, well, as, as you know, because we have been doing the series on the philosophy of data science and mm -hmm. sort of bringing up these more um, philosophical questions, um, especially coming to terms with the fact that there are some um, severely subjective elements uh, yeah. to our field, which it doesn't mean they're not rigorous. It simply mm -hmm. means that ultimately they're subjective. They're um, subjective. And yeah. so I, I thought that that one was interesting. And of course, um, while, yes, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much you uh, integrated uh, this guideline number five into the rest of your work, there are mm -hmm. certainly a number of instances that you bring up that I really like in this paper mm -hmm. about how effectively there are, um, there's a psychological element to this and helping guide people through that psychological element. And so, um, well, I think some of these rules are um, hard and fast on a logical level. Um, mm -hmm. There's also some elements where it's, you know, it's just something to consider to help you holistically work your way through these things. So again, um, yeah. I think that um, especially because I think that a lot of our, uh, a certain portion of our audience are early in their careers. I think that this paper mm -hmm. would be useful. Um, just give yeah. it a read. You know, it is, it is, it is uh, clearly written. It is, uh, it is, you know, it's, it's non-technical. So, I mean, it's like you, you can, you can sit down you can just read it in the morning um, and start, you know, just sort of, grappling with these ideas that uh Jing Yi has put out there um and honestly like um some some of them you know I, I think they'll be pretty clear other ones you're probably gonna have to grapple with a little bit some of them you might not even agree with um right. if, if you don't agree uh leave mm -hmm. it in the comment section we'll start a discussion there yeah or uh better yet uh Jing Yi has her own youtube channel and uh <laughs> you can leave it in there in there as well but no i think that this is very helpful that would be great for me. Yeah, yeah I'm really yeah. looking forward to comments. And one more thing I want to mention is a method that we everyone learned, at least I think in 
graduate school is the logistic regression. It's something people learn in both statistics courses and also machine learning courses. Yeah. And the reason I want to bring this up is that this method itself is very interesting. That is both a statistical inference method as well as a prediction method. So if you think about the one we learn in our statistics course for generalized linear model, when we learn logistic regression in that context, what we are really interested in is whether the feature we are interested in have a non-zero coefficient or not, right? Mm -hmm. To address that problem, it's, it's often used in a lot of social sciences problems, we are actually doing a hypothesis testing for the coefficient of that feature and to test it being zero or not. And that's a hypothesis testing problem. And obviously, we use our sample of size n to decide on that question. On the other hand, we learn logistic regression as a classification method. It could be used for binary classification and even multi-class classification. So in that case, what we do is that we train the model on training data. We, and in, that's equivalent to say we fit a model to our data by doing parameter estimation. And then we apply the trained model to predict the label for a new instance. So in that way, it's used as a, a classification rule. So I think it's very interesting that if you use think about logistic regression, then the distinction between hypothesis testing and binary classification may be, may be clearer. Honestly, that was actually, that was going to be my final question for the day. Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah, I want to bring that one up because I think it does, it is an example of bringing everything together or, or if not bringing it together, at least slicing it on the same, on the same issue. Cause I think that this is one of those instances where you can use this and th this is essentially, it's a tool in either way. Um, yeah. I think especially P um, a lot of people who are heavily in the predictive space sometimes forget that, um, hypothesis testing on coefficients of uh, logistic regression and um, uh, Cox proportional hazard survival uh, models. Um, this is bread and butter of scientific inference in, um, in the biomedical field, in clinical trials and things like that. And so um, a machine learning person's feature is, can effectively be a uh, biostatistician's outcome. Um, and so um yeah, I, 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 th I think that it, that is a, it is a useful thing in sort of grappling with that idea with this example where it's essentially it can it can be used by other fields. I, th I, th I think that that is a useful that, that is a useful example. So yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Thank you. What else? Uh, what else should we talk about? Um, this is such a nice paper. I, I hate to let it go. Um, and but are, are there any other are there any other sort of ideas or? Um, Corollaries, any thoughts that you've had since then? Um, mm. How students oh. have been uh, using this and making their own decisions? Yeah, actually, I try to advocate this paper to the students I teach at UCLA so that especially to our bioinformatics PhD students, because mm -hmm. a lot of their analysis problems need their formulation, right? The formulation is usually the most difficult step. After that, there may be just a popular method they could directly apply to address the problem. But without the formulation, then the solution may not be appropriate. So that's why I try to advocate this paper to them. And one more thing I want to emphasize as a side note is that the sample size, the one we mentioned about for the deciding the distinction between hypothesis thing and classification. And one more thing we can think about, which I think is very interesting, is about the effect of sample size increase on our performance. 
So I think for hypothesis testing, what's known and what's very interesting is that if you let your sample size go to infinity, if you have the population, then your power for the test will have will, will reach one. So the power should always go to one if the test is correctly formulated and if you have the sample that goes to infinity. But that's not the case for our classification. So with binary classification, even though you may have an infinite sample size, your prediction or classification error may not go down to zero. It's possible that the two classes you study, zero class, one class, they have some natural overlap. So for instances fall into the overlap, you could never correctly predict them. So I think that's another way for people to really think about whether the problem should be formulated as hypothesis testing and binary classification. Yeah, I like that. No, yeah, it's like, yeah. Unless you do your modeling wrong, in which case you can't yeah. get that uh, that uh, zero prediction accuracy or one hundred percent prediction accuracy. But yeah, no, yeah. I, I think that is a good example. It actually reminded me a little bit mm. of uh, another issue that was that was brought up, which is yeah. the issue of uh, multiple comparisons. And, multiple comparisons. Yeah. Yes. And yes. one one thing that um, I both one I guess for anyone in the statistical field, you know, uh, yeah. if you blindly if you bumble into multiple comparisons error, essentially yeah. where you don't adjust or you know don't even think about adjusting for multiple yeah. comparisons, um, you're going to end up embarrassed. Um, so you know, <laughs> th there's just a quick thing for anyone yeah. out there um, in the yeah. statistical field. Um, you know, that's that's one of the first things that statisticians are going to jump on. But one of my sort of uh, beefs with the multiple comparison issue is that a lot of the times the null hypothesis under multiple comparisons, I, I I don't find them particularly uh, mm. plausible. And that, mm. you know, the assumptions that they undertake, you know, um, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm by no means sort of like a, a, a null hypothesis nihilist by any means, mm. but at the same time, you know, the idea that um, if you are com making two comparisons, it's not entirely clear to me mm. in what cases these things are more or less independent versus um, highly, well, I guess the, the more independent they are, the, the clear of the case, but when they're correlated, but it's not perfectly clear how, the question is, well, how do you sort of parse through that? And that's one of the questions. Um, actually, um, I was talking to someone uh, just uh, just last week on um, the issue of uh, spatial temporal modeling mm -hmm. and um, the essentially performing multiple hypothesis tests when you simply change the um, either the bounds of the spatial region that you're looking at or the temporal region. So essentially you're sort of increasing the little epsilon neighborhood again and again and again. Um, and how essentially a lot of those tests are going to be highly correlated. Um, but at the same time, you wouldn't want something, for example, like a Bonferroni where you're just going to be multiplying that out uh, because it, it wouldn't make any sense. You aren't truly doubling the space that in which you could actually find something you're increasing it marginally. So, but at the same time, I'm, I don't want to discount people who are very good at mathematics and might have very good representations of what that null hypothesis space might look like. But what, what's your opinion on that? I know I've gone on for a little bit, but you know, what are ways that people can sort of try to weed through that problem of we have multiple uh, we we have multiple gene expression or we have multiple genes that we're looking at? Um, yeah, they're probably that correlated in some way, but how correlated? What, what's your thought? Yeah, that's a very good question. And also, I think that's why the multiple testing problem has been so extensively studied in statistics. I think the re recently there was a method proposed for combining multiple 
p-values is a way for actually that the old problem I mentioned in the beginning, right? You have multiple p-values, but you don't believe that they are independent. How to combine them? So recently, people proposed to use a Cauchy method to combine dependent p-values. So that's for that aspect. We have some advances, and for the decision, right? Like you said, Benjamin Hochberg, that's the FDR method to set a cutoff on multiple comparison. It's an alternative to the uh, uh, to the Bonferroni correction because mm -hmm. we know Bonferroni is very conservative. However, the Benjamin Hochberg the theory also assumes independence. I think later they have some follow-up work over the years to address like under which dependent scenarios that procedure still works well and there are some corrections, etc. But still, I would say in practice, most people still use the procedures that assume independence. And I agree that it's, a, it's actually a concern. So that's why I, I feel like if the problem can be easily formulated as a binary classification problem, we can reduce such, we can avoid those difficulties to deal with the multiple testing problem. That's actually exactly the motivating example I mentioned. So the cell paper tried to formulate the problem as a multiple testing problem instead of binary classification problem. So that's why they run into many the independence issues we mentioned. Yeah, and also I, I want to say that regarding the independence assumption um, to really think about whether the assumptions are reasonable or not. My idea is to really pin down the randomness in our data. So which aspects do we think as random? So I would say, so just as an opportunity to advocate our recent new work. So in our new work, we actually try to control the false discovery rate without using multiple testing or we are without using p-values to be exact. So we don't need to use p-values as an, as an intermediate quantity to apply the FDR control thresh procedure. What we do is that we try to, um, we're motivated by the knockoff procedure developed by Rina Barbers and Emmanuel Candice to actually set a cutoff on some statistics directly to control the FDR. So the testing using p-value, those calculations can be avoided and that can simplify the problems a lot. And in that, in that paper, which we call Clipper, we also have the independence assumption for our theoretical guarantee. But we are arguing that in many biomedical data analysis problems, this assumption is reasonable. The reason is that in our data, if the data are considered as technical replicates, then and with some effective batch effect correction, then we think the randomness of each data point around this mean is simply due to some random experimental error that's independent across experiments. So we can safely assume that here the randomness are not correlated. And that seems a little counterintuitive to people's belief that the genes are correlated in some way. We know that. However, we are arguing that that level, the correlation we're talking about is about the genes expected expectation, expected expression. So for example, we know when gene one is highly expressed, gene two is also highly expressed. When gene one is lowly expressed, then gene two is also lowly expressed. Then we know they are positively correlated. But that correlation is about their expected true expression, not about their random measurements. So if we are conditioning ourselves on the true expression and only think about the randomness in the measurement, then we can safely assume that the randomness are uncorrelated. That's our argument. So still, I think the ultimate question is, what do you consider as random and what do you consider as fixed? 
Yeah, that's really interesting. That's uh, actually uh, gives me something to think about. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, and I guess um, for that paper, is that paper up mm. on your website? Now? Yeah, it's on my website. It's currently in um, in a posted to bioarchive, and our paper is under is under the second round of revision at the Journal of Genome Biology. Excellent, cool. Well, yeah. um, I'll I'll pop a picture up of that and yeah. have a link in the description of the video. Um, yeah, no, that that is something interesting. Um. That, that, that is something to think about, um, and I'll definitely need some time to digest that one. Um, but that would be interesting, especially because if there are strong biological cases for making some of these types of assumptions, um, I find those very compelling. Um, and then, you know, if you can combine them with data or a measurement, uh, all the better. But yeah, no, that, that, that strong foundational biological assumption, I think, is very interesting. Um, cool. So uh, just so you, for anyone else who's interested in... Uh, Jingyi's work, obviously, we're going to be having uh, lots of information in the description, so she'll be very easy to track down. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to cover? Mm, I think that's pretty much it. And just for, I would say, in the paper, my mm -hmm. paper, the, this paper, the in the beginning, I spent quite some time to cover the basic concepts of hypothesis and classification. So for readers who are new to those concepts, they could read the first half as just a way to, as a recap. Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll, I will second that. And obviously I would have no problem disagreeing with somebody if I didn't agree with that, but I do actually find it very helpful. Um, the sections are well labeled. Um, I have plenty of underlines in here. She has very useful tables that sort of give this sort of A versus B uh, comparison, which people will find useful. Um, each of the, um, uh, she talks about decision rules, which I think is an important issue um, in constructing them. So she does go through and, um, so it's weird talking about someone in third person while they're right here uh, to an audience who won't see this yet. Um, but yeah, you know, um, for people who are interested, uh, Jingyi does go through and sequentially address these and says, here's how hypothesis testing deals with this issue. Here's how binary classification deals with this issue. She has multiple uh, examples in uh, sort of these nice little boxes that are that are helpful. Um, and then she has her checklist. And so I think that this is a paper that um, you can get through it. You might need to reread a few, a few of the sentences because some of these things are a little bit counterintuitive, but that doesn't mean they aren't correct. And so I think that, I think that's something where this, this is a very useful paper. And I do appreciate that um, given that um, the culture of our sort of data science and statistical field um, they do seem to be having these divergent points around things like prediction versus statistical inf inference and hypothesis testing. Um, I think the papers like that that try to bring the topics back together are very useful. So uh, again, thanks for your contribution on this. I think it's very helpful. Thank you, Ben. And also, I want to make an acknowledgement in the last, that is, in our paper, we didn't try to tackle the Bayesian paradigm at all. We tried, we tried to avoid that. We're just talking about the hypothesis thing in the frequentist paradigm. That, that yeah. is true, yeah. 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 Yeah, well, maybe um, it'll be it'll be good to uh, have you back on sometime. Um, especially, I think anyone who's making really nice papers like this yeah. that are helpful and just get along on the concepts, I think those are very helpful. So, uh, Jingyi, I really yeah. appreciate your time today. Thank you, Glenn. My pleasure. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single, simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, 
forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, et cetera, like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website. Thank you.